Hello and welcome everyone. Today I am very excited to be joined by someone way more experienced than I am at doing these sort of things, uh, Jack Chew. So Jack, thank you for joining. Yeah, no problem, pleased to be with you. So I was trying to work out what to call you before this. So we've come up with, or I've come up with this and you've accepted it, physiotherapist and entrepreneur. I think they're both accurate. Yeah, <laughs> called, called many things, many worse. So uh, I'll go with that, that's fine. No, great. No, thanks for joining this. It's a bit, you've been like I've been monitoring your work on this for a long time, and albeit this is something that I've wanted to do for ages, it's it's, it's good to see that someone that's been kind of pioneering this stuff for, for a long a long time, a lot longer than the uh, all of the pandemics been going on for. So we'll, we'll get into that later on. Um, but yeah, so whereabouts are you from originally? I did actually have a look at your. Um, you're going through your LinkedIn profile to get a bit of research on there as well. So I've got a few more in-depth questions than I would normally go into about your academic background because it looks quite an interesting one. Okay, I look forward to that. But yeah, I'm, I'm originally from a, a town, well, a village just north of Burnley in Lancashire. It's near the York, Lancashire-Yorkshire border. Um, that's where I was born and raised. Um, and then, but I now, I now live uh, in a village just by Altrincham in Cheshire. Um, and so I, I moved from about an hour north of Manchester to about half hour south of it now, and um, and so that's that's where I am. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm fascinated now, and I'm, it's one of them LinkedIn profiles. How often do you update them, and what gremlins are you going to uncover from looking into that? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it was. Any, it's nothing. It's nothing bad. But when what I could look at, so it's like you've got very good um, A level grade. Uh, sorry, GCSE grades. And it looks what it looks like for me is that you had a real pathway in terms of what you wanted to do early on. So I'm interested to know if that is the case of did you have a plan of going into medicine? Yeah, I see what you mean. I, I, and um, I think, yeah, I was I was I was fairly. I was academically gifted to a point, but then the, the more that you tried to specialize. So when you were adding depth rather than breadth, that's where I noticed that I I. I I had an upper limit. I think if I picked a certain thing, yeah, I could I could really specialise and hone in. But I am a generalist. I always was then, right? So, um, so the more I tried to specialise, the more I realised I was craving other disciplines and always looking to blur the lines between disciplines. And so, I had a direct career path in a way in that I didn't have the retraining gap years, anything like that. So I had a fairly clean route through, um, but. I think that academically and, and where I ended up in physiotherapy, I ended up with a really interesting mix where I did my A-levels and I did four A-levels. I did biology, PE, media and marketing and a um, so English language, right? Because I was absolutely torn, right? I was going to be a physio or I was going to be a journalist. When I just at that point couldn't decide, did my A-levels. Eventually I needed to get stuck into deciding and went into physio. I mean, what is it? Within within what felt like minutes of being a physio, I then coined what is a physio journalist, right? I start broadcasting, I start um, commentating on them. And I think had I gone the other way, had I gone into journalism, I'd have been a science writer, I'd have been a health writer, I'd have probably ended up being interested in rehabilitation and injury. You know, it's just amusing because I never actually needed to decide, did I? Like, there was only, only briefly I needed to decide to pick a degree. But once again, that's another example of just blurring the lines between, I'm always interested in P 
people parameterizing certain disciplines. I'm like, no, they're false borders. And so um, that's what's been my story. And I think from, from the off, really, when you look back to my sort of schooling and that, I am just a, sort of a proud generalist. Yeah, I mean, I suppose those two things, they're, they're sort of very different. But again, you kind of merging, merging those two areas. So why do you think you were so keen on like either journalism or physio? Um, I, I'm obsessed and kind of always have been with, with questions. And I'm fearful that my kids are going to be the same. I am, I am the kid that never stopped asking why and still doesn't. You know, I just... Hopefully my questions have become a little more sophisticated than just why, 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 but I am just obsessed with it. And I think what's interesting is physiotherapy and my wing of it in MSK rehabilitation has far more questions than answers. And if it had more answers than questions, I think I'd be less interested in it, right? It's young, it's, it's dynamic, it's changing. It, 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 it pisses me off most weeks because something changes, something moves, something that confronts your own biases happens on a regular basis. You know, it's so malleable. And then, and of course, journalism is good journalism should be the pursuit of truth, right? You should be trying to unpick things, try to develop a level of accuracy that truly represents what actually happened, right? Cutting through spin and propaganda and stuff. So I find them to be, yeah, they're relevantly different. Of course they are. It, it surprises some people when I try to make a case for them being so similar. But I hope I've made a case there for why there are some common threads and it coincides with my passions interests and disposition you know i just i am just uh, obsessed with the question mark and, uh, and and so i pursue it through various ends and i always say that clinically when i see patients the initial parts of the conversation at least are not dissimilar to when i'm interviewing an eminent professor or I'm discussing something in a, um, a B2B business type meeting. It's like fundamentally, I'm sat in front of someone who knows what they know and I know what I know. And I just want to try and see how I might be able to help, what solutions we could come to together. And what what I want to know what they know and try to elicit that for whatever audience might be appropriate. You know, I don't find that it's a bit like that blurring of boundaries again. I never find these things that different, to be honest. Um, and, uh, and so... Uh, I just see, I, I, I'm good at, I think maybe good at spotting commonalities, you know, when people think that that's quite different, they think, oh, that's a very different hat to wear. It's like, oh, actually, I don't think so. I find it, I find it similar, but, um, you know, I'm just very, very fortunate to have developed something that suits my character. Mm. And do you think like the fact that you're constantly questioning things then, does that make it challenging for you to sort of come to a decision on what you want to do? Um, yeah, it, it does sometimes. It does. I mean, you, you, you've got to, you'd be a hypocrite to not question yourself as much as you question others. But uh, I'm a, you know, I get lost in my own head, always have. And therefore, you know, I'm fairly introspective. But, I, but in doing so, having done that for many years, you, you develop a sense where you, you're not allowing yourself to indulge conviction when you might not know right you you because that would be arrogant although you know in phases in your life you might have and i'm pl still plenty accused of that but it's just that generally speaking i don't think you know you don't convince yourself because you are always questioning it but then also if you've done that enough you know what your baseline priors are you kind of understand your your own philosophy you understand your own goals you understand your own purpose you know what you're good at you know what you're not good at especially when you're as extrovert as I am, you've been in situations where you've realised just how much of a fool you've managed to look by saying yes to something that you weren't ready for or, or couldn't do. So you've had those experiences too. And if that happens enough, and it happens on fast forward, because you're doing so much, then you also end up knowing 
you've got a good foundation for decision making and so things become a bit more prompt you know you know uh, it's not death by consensus so it's not that every every decision needs to be brainstormed um, 10 times you, you start to develop a bit of crispness to your decision making as well but it's a really good point and i think that that is one of the dangers of questioning everything is that you then end up really struggling to finally come to an answer um but you, you get some cheat sheets and some shortcuts that emerge in time you know you start to trust on it's a bit like a clinical diagnostics is that you start to recognize patterns and you start to read people better and and generally speaking some of the naivety starts to fall away and and you you kind of can come to a conclusion a bit sooner than you used to um, and i think that that thoroughness that should stay with you is a good thing and it, it, it needn't become a bad one unless you're riddled with self-doubt and you notice you're not getting anything done and, and and the the outcomes are the key thing as well as having the right people around you will soon tell you that if you if you did or in if you if something's amiss they'll soon be asking you because you're making decisions for other people the whole system slows down if you stop moving new mad ideas into the machine yeah now i'll definitely come back to asking you about getting the right team around you because i think that's something that's it's always at the forefront of my mind as well. Mm. What you mentioned there about um, putting yourself in a situation because you're that type of character where you maybe aren't as prepared or understanding as you should be. Have you got any specific examples of that? Yeah, no, I think um, because because I have voice will travel and, and also have a clinical skill set that's fairly versatile, I... Um, I suppose it's, you know, do I give, give a specific example? What would be a good specific example? I mean, it, it, it's, the reason I'm struggling is because it's kind of plentiful in that, you know, I will always give something a go. You know, it's just, a, you know, I did a, a moderated debate at a moment's notice uh, between orthopedic surgeons and there wasn't a therapist in the room. And they wanted that the, the, the debate moderator that had pulled out was someone that was just going to almost administrate the debate but i didn't know that necessarily right and the debates when i moderate debates and stuff i don't get involved i don't end up picking a side but but i ask pointed devil's advocacy style questions i follow up and challenge either side of the of the of the panel and the event organizers and the panelists did not see that coming and so i ended up delivering what I think I mean the audience enjoyed it you know but the organizers and therefore the paymasters as well as the panelists themselves the surgeons who you know just it's a very agreeable industry anyway but some of the surgeons the only therapists they've met have doffed their cap to them on the corridor you know so who the hell am I and so that was a that was a mistake I can't regret it because I know how it happened but now I will ask you know about it, everything from the tone the tenor what your expectations are if they're then described with like you just administer a, a, a debate it's like well you don't need me then i just opt out of it because i can't be myself i'll sit there on my hands whilst if, if the surgeons are, uh, are saying something that i want to challenge and i need to find a way to challenge it and i feel as a moderator i still could do that without biasing it because i'm about to do the same to the other side so that's one example where i've said i've said yes to something on a moment's notice when most people would be like what in, in in 10 minutes 15 minutes no get lost whereas for me it's just like yeah no worries stage in a microphone sign me up um but um it has then it has then gone awry at times so i hope that's a specific enough example but it is one of many <laughs> no no that's a good one i guess that's the journalism as well isn't it that you're always trying to sort of delve into things so no it's good 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess people want something that's interesting to listen to. So, uh... well, I said the audience, yeah, the audience enjoyed it, but yeah, I don't think that recording saw the light of day because, uh, yeah, at least a couple of the four surgeons were, were, yeah, just not not expecting challenge, or if they were, they were expecting challenge from their colleagues at the other side of the debate. Do you see what I mean? They, they just yeah. didn't, didn't, who am I to do that? Especially I'd, I'd literally just had a chance to quickly shake their hand and say, hi, I'm the stand-in. So uh, yeah, it maybe wasn't a, wasn't my most subtle moment. <laughs> no, very good. So, and then in terms of when you go to, you decide to do physio um, and you went to Nottingham, is that right? Yes, yeah, University of Nottingham. And, so um, and I know. Why'd I pick that? I thought you might ask that. I um, I look at why, where did I apply to go to university? I asked a few questions of a good friend of my mum's, and she'd moved to New Zealand by this point, but was a fairly eminent physio. I think more in like the respiratory game, but I think my mum had asked and I, or I had asked my mum to ask as to what are the good physio schools in the UK and stuff. And she, I remember she'd mentioned, and, and this stands stood the test since really, is that this, she said Nottingham, Birmingham and Cardiff, she said she considered to be best in class. And I liked that answer because I really needed to move away from where I grew up. Um, and so I didn't uh, I didn't want to. I just automatically looked past Leeds, past Manchester um, and Liverpool. I just needed to go further afield. And so I picked those ones. I applied for Nottingham, applied for Birmingham, applied for Cardiff. And then I applied for Southampton because I fancy being on the coast. And then I can't remember where else, but it was just definitely like away. And Nottingham was one of those that had been recommended to me. And I did enjoy it when I went down there for, for interview. And so it just seemed to fit. A um, few things that stop it being perfect for my uni experience. But as far as a clinical course goes, yeah, no regrets there. And it's a small one as well. I think that mattered. That helped me, especially I got myself into some scrapes. And it helped me that the faculty knew each person. You know, if, if I'd have been in a school of north of 100 per cohort then yeah I don't think I'd have made it through for various reasons whereas by dropouts and that I bet we had 40 in our cohort and that helped no end um, for me and so um, I'm glad I went there and, and I've a lot of I've taught there since and I've got a lot of time I've got a lot of time for that school and I know it's going on you know, it's coming on leaps and bounds modernizing as well which is great. Mm. Why do you think you'd uh, thrive better in that smaller group then? Well, it's more that, um, yeah, I got myself into some bother for a few reasons and that the staff knew me enough to vouch for me, right? So on, on a surface level, it'd be like I'd, I'd make a mistake that if they didn't know me, it just on a surface level, it looks like he's a clown. We need him out. He's, you know, it's unprofessional. He, he, he can't be trusted. And fortunately, because it was a smaller cohort, I think there was some staff that knew me enough to think rough, you know, more of a, a bit arrogant to say it of yourself, but I kind of rough diamond type thing. You know, it was that it was that there's something there. He's worth. We're not letting that slide. It needs to improve, but you know, they seem to they seem to vouch for me, and I don't think I think I'd have they wouldn't have taken that risk. I don't think if it had been larger. And so I think that's just a fortuitous thing, really. It's not as if I picked it because it was small cohort, because I knew I was going to test that boundary. I just mean that in hindsight, when I look back and I look at the opportunities and I look at the forgiveness and I look at, 
uh, at what what leeway I was given in certain circumstances by certain members of the faculty. They needed to know me and they needed to think there's something in this. He's he's worth he's worth us helping him over the line for a degree for. And so I think that's why. Mm, yeah, and that's interesting. I was actually chatting with one of my colleagues because uh, we had on um, Professor Graham Smith. I spoke to him this week. Yeah. We were talking yeah. about sports therapy and like it was really I found it so interesting. He was telling me about why it started and and so on. Well, in terms of that, then, like from a physiotherapy perspective, like for the general people who aren't in this area, people will be thinking physio, they kind of associate it with sports injuries, don't yes. they? Yes. Yeah. What's mm. your views on like physio versus, say, sports therapy, sports rehab and like, the positions that they play? Yeah, I think it is interesting and certainly Graham's insights into that. They're some of my favourites as well because of his journey and his story and his pioneering of 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 of, of splintering. Um I'm I've become my biggest thing to put in play really is I've become a real vocal advocate for what we call competence-based recruitment. And so I've become a ally of sensible and sane Cairo sports therapists, osteopaths, sports rehabbers, podiatrists. I make a case that our the, the flavor of the certificate on our walls should matter less and less. We draw from the same evidence base and that yes, there's some interest in history and legacy that I'm not ignoring. There's also some uh, dirty tactics that have occurred across different disciplines to keep others down. And I don't like that. And it's not as if I'm trying to whitewash that history. But I mean, right now, uh, I just care increasingly less about exactly what it is that you call yourself. Um, and so I think what's interesting is that physiotherapy has got a lot to answer for in the MSK and sports world because of the fact that it is such a more generalised degree than, say, sports therapy and sports rehab. But then also there isn't there is a relevant amount to say about the fact that we get a, a better, I would argue, better baseline with regards to neurorespiratory and some of the other more subtle soft skills that you have to require to get in amongst it and do your thousand hours within the health service, you know. So it's it's um, sometimes I hear not Graham, by the way, but I sometimes hear others that sometimes want to dismiss some of that as if that was wasted time. Um, but I always think that, you know, I remember thinking it was wasted time when I was studying plant enzymes in biology at A level. And it wasn't, was it? Because understanding how things denature under certain circumstances and understanding, you know, it, if I hadn't learned that, I wouldn't have been as good at learning about chemoreceptors when I needed to understand about pain physiology. So it's like sometimes people think that, that physiotherapy degrees, it's like, look at all that wasted time that isn't MSK. And I think that's clumsy. But then similarly, if you don't have a good postgraduate pathway, and by that I don't mean academically, because I'm a hypocrite if I said that, I mean, good mentorship and good experience and get stuck into it and specialise relatively early in MSK and sport, then you will have a relevant gap. And I think that the sports rehabbers and the sports therapists and, and other uh, more specialised osteos and chiros, I think, do have a bit of a jump on physios in that regard. It's at that phase in your early career. Um, and the, the uh, those that... proud When I say proud generalist, I'm still very specialised in MSK and sport, but some... Are such generalists in physiotherapy that they sort of rotate within disciplines or as, as good at managing stroke patients as they are respiratory patients on intensive care and then when presented with an OANE I just will not have that they are then as good a therapist as someone that's then spent the last five years in MSK and sport and so I think that's where um, sometimes especially in the jobs market it can be unfair on some of the other MSK disciplines 
when they are looked passed over for roles or passed over for sort of salary windows for someone that's you know a, a far cry on, on a on a like here's, here's the here's the same patient with the same knee pathology i know who i'd be wanting to have see that yet um the very ge generalized rotational physio is some sort of uh, gravitas that seems to come with the history of what they've done uh, that, that i think is, is misplaced and so um you know i hope that speaks to where my position is now uh that the, the uh, i wasn't in the game when some of the big complex bits of politics and history happen but to hear about them is fascinating i think they loom larger than they should do i think that sometimes that's uh, a shame you know i think that 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 is some real sour grapes i've, I've uncovered various different parts of that and uh Oh, I bet, you know, as if as if naively, I'm like, oh, you two would get on well, and it turns out that they fell out in famous style 15 years before I qualified and stuff. So I find that sort of stuff a bit annoying, and and I, I might call it petty, but actually those wounds might cut deep, and I, I can't pretend that I know all those insights. Uh, but but if we can move past it, I think intellectually we're in a really good spot to try and merge those disciplines. And my centre of my bulls is raising standards in MSK care, so I want as big a workforce as I can for that. You know, I, I'm I'm. Uh, give me any msk mercenary anytime yeah yeah and in terms of that then so you said to talk about working in sports injuries like a lot of the vision for people when they're doing physio it seems is they want to work in professional sport is that something that you ever had in mind um i think i think i did for a bit but and this is where definitely a phase where I'll allow, allow, I'll, I'll definitely look back and think that I was more arrogant then than I am now to, to think this. But I looked on and I looked at who was pursuing that, and I looked at who was having the the photos in the in the tracksuit with the pro athletes, and I knew they were dog shit. And so it was kind of helpful for me to look on and go, oh, that's smoke and mirrors. That's him and his mate have shook the right, you know, his dad's best friend's cousin's dog got him in that club and he don't get paid, but he gets paid in a tracksuit. And then he rubs that West Ham second team as calves. It doesn't tell us anything about his quality, does it? So I then pursued what I felt was a credible career, learning my trade under, under decent thinkers and making myself accountable to my own knowledge like why do i think that and stuff and so then when i realized there's some brilliant therapists in that world of course there are and there's a great case that the cream rises to the top right there's no there's no imposters running the show at the top of these these elite institutions right of course there isn't they'd never get away with it but because of that craving that many have it, there, there is um posing with athletes or working in professional sport it, it just as a means of just having that experience that is not a good proxy for quality and so when i realized that it made me crave it less because i just thought well no i want to do things right i want to justify it I, I, I talk i talk a lot and i talk even then and i want to be able to back it up you know i'm not i'm not a fraud I'm not, i want to work on the better healthcare ethics of being able to answer questions directly when patients ask me what do you think how long do you think it's going to take what else could it be i want to be able to have those answers as close to the truth as they can be and when other therapists want to challenge my practice i want to be able to have good answers for that and to, to learn from their challenge and stuff and and i think that the 
the pursuit of that, I think, is 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 blinkered and a bit naive. And I think we, the sooner we can get away from thinking about, you know, how many how many Olympians have you robbed as being some sort of proxy for quality, the sooner we can move away from that, the better. And I think young therapists would do well to not aspire to it purely because of the kudos. Uh, that's the thing. Um, it, of course, it's a, a laudable career path, and it, it sometimes really can tell you about working in those, those high levels and understanding the needs and demands of performance and stuff at that level is is certainly something you can learn from. But just for the sake of kudos, I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a mistake, if I'm honest. And I'm very fortunate that in in various circumstances that are more suited to my style and character then you know you you do things right and you get asked to consult on these cases and you get a chance to be able to say yes or no to it or you get offered opportunities to you know I've, I always I don't like to say this sort of stuff but you know I've been asked to I've asked to been asked to be a physio at many major games and stuff now you know it's um I haven't taken them up on it and therefore you could argue it might not be good enough if I turned up there you know that might be the case and I think that certainly on a sport and an acute sport type level pitch side level it's a long time since I really honed my craft in that in that space but I'm just meaning that um had I um it, it, by then it becomes a career decision where why am I why am I not going to a major games on the um east coast of australia is because i want to be at home with my family because i've made that decision and i set up a private practice local enough to my house because of that reason and because i travel a lot with as an educator or as a conference organizer or as a business person generally that i don't also want to aspire to that because um yeah it's just not in my plan i don't think it's going to help me towards mine and our team's goals really so I hope that gives an answer. I don't want to be disrespectful to those that pursue that because I think there's some phenomenal, phenomenal uh, friends of mine that work in that space. But I think the baseline instinct to aspire to, I think, is misplaced, and I think it's uh, and it's something I think we should grow out of. Mm. And do you think that's got worse? Like we'd be seeing general life with social media, Instagram, Facebook, and, and all of that. Like getting a nice photo with someone. I mean, I, I love getting a pic with a celeb. Don't get me wrong. I'm well. Yeah, into- yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not. I'm not immune to it. Like it's funny. People, people, it'd be so funny because people would naturally call me out on that when they see, um, you know, I, 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 there will be out there, you know. Um, but I think it's. I don't know. I as a professional, I don't know a world in which uh, we've not had some form of influencer culture, and also since 2013, I've been a relatively public person within physiotherapy within MSK and stuff as a broadcaster and Physio Matters as a podcast took off very quickly in such a way that my voice exerted some influence in that space fairly soon. So I've had that simultaneously, like culturally, we've ended up having a big social media revolution, right? So I I qualified in, I qualified, bloody hell, 2009, was it? Something 2009. And so then I remember with just about uh, Facebook had just made it to the UK when I started uni or whatever but then so since then it's just been nothing but social media and then interprofessionally I've been using social media to affect since 2013 and so I don't know a world that's different but I think that that a version of that and apparently it was always like that before you know that's what people said before social media still said oh he's a good physio he worked for Bolton Wanderers or he's a, he's a good physio and he worked at, remember growing up before I was a physio and stuff, it's like, oh, he worked at Burnley. And I remember at the time just being like, 
Burnley are shit. And the second division at the time, I was like a bit surprised. That was rude of me because he might have been a brilliant physio. But what I was meaning is, what's that meant to tell me? I remember at the time thinking, well, why? If he once worked a season at Burnley, might have been voluntary, when they were in second, divi- second division in the 90s. I just can't comprehend why that would tell me anything interesting. But that person was telling me as a means of saying, do you want an autograph? You know, it just seemed bizarre to me. And, and I still feel like, uh, and again, I get accused of being disrespectful sometimes with this so maybe i'll shut up on it but you know i think that that's uh that's definitely a our physio and msk version of a cultural phenomena definitely and and i don't know i, I get it and there's some people in that celebrity world that really deserve it you know and especially when it comes to athletes and stuff rub shoulders with some great athletes recently that we covered the and i spoke at the arnold's sports festival and and I do enjoy conversations with them and they have some great insights and they deserve they deserve a crowd that want their autograph, right? I'm not dismissing that as if to say, oh, they're just one of us. But I'm just meaning that there's nothing about that world that tells you how decent a therapist is at helping people get better with their pain and injuries. It's just not, it's not that. In fact, sometimes those sorts of people at the very top of their game, especially in the celebrity world that aren't necessarily intersecting with sports performance, they might be more susceptible to bullshit and so if anything it can sometimes be a bit of a tell that um what they want is, is a therapist sometimes they might want a therapist that's a yes man for them and they just panders to their needs right they might not not they might not have a therapist that, that will tell them that i'm afraid you might not need your quads massaging you might need to do some squats if they want to rub and not squats who's going to be brave enough to tell them that obviously i'm caricaturing there and it's not as simple as that but i'm just meaning like Who's going to be giving appropriate clinical decision-making moments that aren't necessarily attractive to that patient if they are someone that their main hope in that interaction is that they post some on their Instagram stories with them side by side saying this physio is brilliant. They'll just do what they want. They'll do, do what the patient wants, won't they? So I just think that that's why I end up having a bit of a beam up on it about that sort of stuff sometimes. Mm, no, I think there's definitely there's different politics and and ways to play and again in that environment you can see it's, it's, it's a different thing that you've got to manage isn't it you're managing massive players or athletes or whatever it is and that is something you've got to consider as well so no i can definitely see there's a can see your point on that but in terms of like your vision then so what did you want to do so you mentioned about doing the podcast it was 2010 you graduated by the way <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so then you've got like so you've three years and you set your podcast up but what do you like, what was your vision when you were coming out of university? Well, I certainly didn't envisage a, a, vision, a podcast. And I think when I graduated, I, I needed to just, you know, at the heart of it, really, I, I graduated and a lot of my friends went off and tried to find themselves on a beach in Fiji on the on the lash. And, and uh, I needed to not do that. I could tell that I needed to close a chapter on student life. And so I applied for jobs wherever I could find them. And I needed to have something that was sort of, sort of a base security job and I, I got a, I got a, one of only three full-time um, rotational jobs at the time it was into a jobs crisis in the NHS and I, but it was in Margate in Kent about as far away from uh, about far away from me as, as as could be really at the time but it's just that then there wasn't a, a clinical vision certainly as I graduated it was just about right I needed to consolidate and try and get get my act together um life-wise i needed to just get into a tempo of working full-time and i needed to just see how that felt and see what it meant to be a professional and and see um 
see how to uh, how to go about that. That was the pri priority number one. And then I just cannot believe my luck as to who I met then as a mentor that was able to support my clinical goals. And so as soon as I found that, as soon as I realised, oh, wow, this thing that I thought I might fancy called MSK and sports um, is, is, is the centre of my universe. Because the concept of rehabilitation is so central to my wider ethics, philosophy, politics, right? It's just this, this idea of facilitating someone to better themselves by exposure to challenging things. I'm just well into that, right? It, it's not like an overarching philosophy. It's not me implying that everyone can do that on every little unit of thing in their life, but it's just like there's a general central tenant. And also at the time, including in my dissertation and, and, and things that I was studying, um, the science was pointing in that direction, not just in our field, but in psychology, right? CBT was on the up and, and you just had this, this idea of sort of exposing yourself to challenge at the right dosage and it creating self-improvement was all the rage. So when I got the right mentorship to support that, I can't pretend that anything that we've created since is anything to do with me at uni or after uni much apart from he wants to run his own business or he has some entrepreneurial spirit yeah that was there it's always been there but the specifics of it not at all but a couple of years in i then paid enough attention to the industry to say wow no one's really asking any challenging questions because it's so agreeable because people in healthcare skew to being the more empathetic and rightly so but what they're doing with that is they're then thinking that to ask a challenging question which would actually raise standards in both that conversation and in the wider industry they're opting out of that just as a means of being what nice. So I then came in thinking, well, I can be compassionate and empathetic and want what's best for my patients, but I can also my disagreeable streak, my devil's advocacy, my journalistic traits. What if I applied them into it? And so that's kind of where I realized that there could be something more unique for me to tread. And I'd also come to I'd come to terms with the fact that I was I wasn't people said, are you going to be a knee specialist? You're going to be a shoulder specialist. You're going to be a spinal specialist. And I was just I could tell already that I was like. I don't think that's the way that we should all go, but I also know that I would be bored soon soon if I had to just zone in on one thing. And I think that the, the way that you manage your shoulder on a baseline term, you know, there's going to be some specialisms there. Of course, there is always is. But I don't think the fundamentals are going to be that different to an ankle. You're, you're mental. No, it's a totally different world. You know, in fact, I bet there's a different degree in the future. Someone told me, I remember at the time, you know, a high specialist in, in shoulders told me that that was I was talking such nonsense that eventually you'd probably even get a bachelor's in in shoulder physiotherapy. Um, I think I've ended up being right on this, whereby fundamentally your base principles mean that you're you know, if you spoke to Joe Gibson about uh, you know one of the most eminent shoulder specialists in the world, I bet you know, I bet she'd she'd talk about what's what's specific about the shoulder and what's relevant to her specialism. But she'd certainly say that the majority of it is something that you could apply to an ankle as well. And and so I think I've been proven right there. And so when I realised those things, I just sought to think right, what's my purpose here? What could I do differently? And I thought I could be a voice in raising standards in MSK therapy. Um, and I set about trying to solve that problem. Like, why is it? What? Clearly, there's a value judgment there. I, I'm saying we need to raise standards. I clearly I'm either saying that things can be better or you know, that's the heart of it, isn't it? Right? I'm saying things can be better. But there's also the fact that at that point, my critique was fairly savage. Right? I, I, I was I was unimpressed with what I'd seen. 
But, but how arrogant is that? I was so new to the profession. What am I saying there? I'm actually saying that I just think that we can do better for individual patients. I think the systems can be more robust. I think that the educational process that underpins people's knowledge aspiration could be better. I think the CPD industry can, you know, some great stuff in there, but it seems to be saturated as well with some nonsense. So it was just like, well, how do you set about solving that? And then I'd, I'd speak to people and it was just brilliant because they just kept, they kept hearing me out and going, well, I agree with a lot of that, but you know, that's not going to change in a rush. And it was brilliant because I remember hearing that and I'd just be like, yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. And I'd come away and I'd just be like, oh, they think I'm in a rush. I was 23. Who's in a rush? I'm still not in a rush. You know, people are like, it's not going to change overnight. I said it was. It don't, don't faze me at all. It still doesn't. You know, it tickles me. Um, so that was helpful because they, they thought I was being dead utopian. Or they thought that I was trying to change too much. It's like, that's a big thing to try and turn around. Or, yeah, that sounds nice, but it's going to be difficult to do. But that was very, I was very lucky because I'd just got a head start from the right support mentorship, as well as then, you know, just good foundations that meant that I didn't need to be in a rush. And so we could set about methodically changing things. And so when it comes to what you see of my business ventures now, that is my attempt and still my best guess at what would help to raise standards in MSK in the UK. So you end up with a clinical arm, you end up with an educational arm that then does or doesn't do events when it's appropriate. And then you end up with what MSK is becoming and, and, and trying to be, which is then to try and agitate and influence policy through soft power. Um, and the only other way you could do it, and I've seriously thought about it and still do, is that you either do that entrepreneurially as a independent pirate, and create people around you that are wanting to agitate like that or you try to change from within and you try to uh, and, and, and fundamentally you you, know, you spend your life with having a boss and a boss's boss and a boss's boss's boss and it wasn't me uh, I don't think I'm unmanageable but fundamentally it's it's you know I, I wouldn't want that job trying to manage me so I, I didn't want to put that on anyone so what, by the time I could I started to carve out my own path and that's kind of why it's happened. But I can't pretend it was like, can't pretend like oh, it came to me in a dream at 14 or whatever, you know, it's like definitely more emergent than that. But it was from a fairly scathing analysis within a few years of being qualified to think this should be better and people deserve better. People deserve better for what they pay in tax. People deserve better when they, when they um, hand over cash for care. They should have better quality standards. They should be more consistency. They should be as aspiring to excellence. And the system and the people within it sometimes just didn't seem to have the incentives in the right place at that point, 10 mm -hmm. years ago. Things have improved, by the way. I'm like, this isn't my current analysis. <laughs> no, you I mean, I normally ask this towards the end, but you've mentioned it a couple of times in terms of getting mentorship, and it sounds like they've had a big impact. So is that one particular person? Well, I just when I moved to Margate, <laughs> just coincidentally, there was a um, the, the lead of that service, who wasn't a public figure by then, by the way, it was a bloke called Mike Stewart. The New Year listeners might know of that name, No Pain Mike. He just happened to live in the area and happened to work in a service and is now, quite rightly, one of the leading names in sort of pain neuroscience education and helping to, as an educator to comprehend the complexities of, of of pain and explain it to us mere mortals that haven't got that massive brain of his. But do you think about that? So that was that was before he was 
an educator in that sense. He was a practice-based educator doing a lot, but doing a lot locally and stuff. So just, it's just nothing but good luck there, isn't it? So I turn up in the seaside town a long way from where I grew up with funny accent. They kept asking me for a translator and, and me, me direct lead there was Mike Stewart, who also was willing to stay after hours for me to pull on his shirt and ask why and, and just challenge it. it was like, I was just so awkward, but I was just like, I'm, I'm essentially just like, I, I, that can't be the case, Mike. You know, if there's a, if there's a tear, if there's a tear in the hamstring, the, the pain need, why would the pain not be related directly to the size of the tear at the time and afterwards? And why wouldn't that be the center of the bullseye? Why wouldn't then healing that tear be everything we care about? And he'd be the one, he'd just be like, well, why wouldn't it heal? You know, what, what's the metabolic problem that this patient's got? Why would that not heal all right? Oh, okay. And so it would just be this, he'd be willing to be devil's advocate with me as I was doing with him. And he just afforded me that time after hours. And I had nothing else to do, right? It was just like a single bloke in, in, uh, in, in, in Margate in a new job and stuff. I wasn't single for long. Made the mistake there um, in many ways. It bad timing for us to fall in love, but we did. And so that ended up being a challenge. But as a general rule, that mentorship came primarily from him early doors. We didn't lose touch completely, but then when I left that job and went back up to Nottingham, uh, mainly for, for needing to, to move something you know, nearer to then my girlfriend, um, kept in touch with Mike, but then I got served uh, one of his first education posters. One of my colleagues said, you'd love this. It's all about metaphors. You chat that all the time. Now, I only chat that because I'd worked under Mike Stewart. Couldn't believe it. But this metaphorical expression type seminar was coming to town. And they said, oh, you'll like that. And I said, I love it because it's my mate Mike. So I ring him up. So I'm having this idea for a podcast, actually. Do you fancy being one of the first guests? And he thought, well, yeah, I could launch my new education series off the back of it. And so we did. And the rest is history. So that's the key mentor, really, when I think about, I can't think of a more good luck story than that but I have uh, have had other circumstances there um, when I went to Nottingham you know I had uh, uh, Andy Prophet, Rich Kelly, Rob Goodwin were um, Karen Martini um, there's, there's a number of um, people that were in that service that that again gave me the leeway to achieve accepted that my questions weren't quite as nasty as they maybe sounded when I first said them um, and and just helped shape me as both a therapist and as a person you know took the edge off some of my stuff made me realize where I was convincing myself that I was in the right when I wasn't and allowed me to make those mistakes and stuff um, so yeah that that really helped but and all of it good luck you know a lot, a lot of you know just brilliant people that I ended up encountering and then later in my career um, you know I feel like it's been some luck and some judgment as to where I've ended up working, but people like Heather Watson and uh, and Paula Deacon, um, uh, as well as then fortunately making friends with some of my podcast interview guests means that you, you something rubs off on you when you speak to various different you know, the who's who of, of MSK and stuff. So, but yeah, I'd say that the names I've mentioned are the, are the primaries and you know, you, you need to take your chances when they present themselves. But God, can you believe Can you believe it? Seaside Town in Kent and, and Mike Stewart sat at that desk like, can't believe it. <laughs> and you said you, you moved back up here then. So did you start the podcast at the same time as doing your practice? Did they coincide? We set up a, we set up a clinical um, second opinion service out of sports teams where I realised there was quite isolated physios and sports therapists and stuff working out of semi-pro clubs. And they were, um, 
you know, like first entrepreneurial play really was I was looking on and just thinking like, and some of them were bringing it to me in my NHS role, right? They'd say, it's not something I've seen here, but I was working at the rugby at the weekend and I'd hear them out and stuff. And I'd say, I shouldn't really be consulting on this on NHS time. But I realised how isolated they were. You know, the club would be pressurising them and, and the players would be pressurising them and stuff. And the, the therapists were actually making some good decisions, but the club's just like, well, should we MRI it then? And I don't think we need to, but they were willing to. And I thought, right, the club's willing to pay then six six fifty for an MRI at the time, right? They're willing to pay 650 quid for an MRI that they probably don't need. And the therapist's even saying they don't need, but they're just not trusting her. They're not backing her. I wonder if they'd pay me 200 quid to consult on it, to tell them that. And so I got a few ins and I went and did some second opinion consultancy at various different like clubs around that area. And so that was the start of Choose Health as a clinical business and starting to get your name for yourself as second opinion work. When often you were going in and sort of backing the therapist a little bit and um, you'd speak to the player, you'd speak to the coach, you'd speak to the director if you needed to and offer some reassurance about the timeframes. Um, sometimes you'd, you'd need to put them on a different track, but generally speaking, you were just a bit of a fixer. And then if you think about who was then getting you into those roles, you were getting asked to do it by therapists. So I needed to market myself to therapists, but only a few years qualified. And quite rightly, some of my colleagues in the NHS at the time said, well, I don't I don't get it. Like, who are you and why would you do it? Like, we kind of know you and there's something a bit different about some of the stuff you're doing. I mean, these are my mates. So they were giving me loads of grief saying, like, you're just you're just bullshitting. You're going out and implying that you're something you're not and stuff. Like, do they think you're really experienced? And I wasn't. I was always straight with everyone, but it was you know, obviously baby-faced even now. So there now, I really was. So I was never going in and pretending to be some sort of wise sage of 20 years experience i was just going in and saying no i just think we need to look at this differently and actually i think this is a communication breakdown more than it is a clinical problem you're worried about this hamstring not healing but you've only given it three weeks and and uh, and you're wanting to scan it and, and you probably don't need you know don't need an mri in this instance you probably need an ultrasound you know something like that so if i needed to market to um to physios to to my fellow professionals who might then you know get me involved then I needed a way to do that. Now, I had, couldn't think of one <laughs> for a bit. And then I came home, uh, having got a new iPhone, and I had a purple app on it that I had podcast on it. I'd never heard of a podcast. And I listened. I was commuting down to Nottingham from Sheffield at the time. My wife was commuting over to Manchester. And I was commuting to, my now wife was commuting to Manchester. And I was commuting to Nottingham. So I had an hour each way. And I put a podcast on on the way to work, um, an original physio podcast that wasn't ours. And it was amazing. I couldn't believe my luck. Got to work and I was just a better therapist for it. Right? I'd just listened to this interview and it was just, I was, like, I was checking this app because it was a new app. And I'm like, how, have I paid for that? Like, I wonder if it's gone through my iTunes account or something like that. So I wonder how many hundreds of pounds I've just paid for this hour of absolute gold dust. Uh, it turned out I hadn't. It was free, which blew my mind anyway. But anyway, I got there to it. And then on the way home, I then listened to another episode. I was like, I'm going to listen to this. And on the way home, it was garbage. It was one of the worst podcasts I've ever heard. And what happened was it turned out that the podcast on the way to work had been with a therapist who was like top drawer, just done a PhD in lateral hip pain and was just absolute class act, right? And then on the way back, the person that he was interviewing was spouting just untruths, known untruths. Like it never, it didn't make sense. Like a tepid challenge now and again, and it, it was incoherent. There were a few bits in there, but it was just kind of like, 
I hope those ideas don't catch on because it's clearly nonsense. And even I'm, I'm like, who am I to think it's nonsense? But what I mean is it was incoherent. It, it just couldn't, you couldn't make sense of it. And they didn't explain themselves very well. So what I realized by those two experiences is that if you're just going to administrate or facilitate someone just spouting what they want to spout, then you are beholden to how good they are. Whereas if you, so the interviewer was passive to that process, right? They were just holding a microphone up, right? It was just like a, um, you know, it's like the, if, if a cameraman had long enough arms in the news, then they could do that, couldn't they? They could just hold it out at a press conference. This is an unskilled arm, right? That was what it was kind of like, which is a bit mean because there's some talent to some of those early early interviewers, but they weren't, in their defence, they weren't looking at it as journalists. They were just like, oh, maybe we should broadcast some of your ideas. And in that case, it was like, because we're going to hopefully get some people onto your course. So it was just like, here's the mic. So I thought, what if I bring my questioning style to that and therefore get that out to, you know, there's something that therapists can learn from. I can't afford to go on all these people's courses at the moment, absolutely skint, commuting all over the country, including to work an hour, each of us, between us, we commuted three hours each way. So it's like, um, why, don't I put, why don't I put a podcast out? And, 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 and I was ranting about it. Um, well, I didn't suggest it, actually. I was ranting about this podcast thing, and Charlotte just said to me, could you do better? And, and I said, yeah. And she said, well, then we've been thinking of ways to try and reach therapists. Maybe that would do it. And it did. I mean, it's just, again, more luck than judgment. The podcast then lit up, lit up. Do you know what I mean? Like if Ricky Gervais had just started a podcast and it just sort of the medium was doing well. And so I got into it there. And I think that that's, um, that's why you, you just clinical business needed fuel and you needed to market it and it was like how would you reach therapists because they're your referrers and so we reached out to therapists now it was too successful in a way because it was national and international right you weren't getting you know the amount of inquiries we'd get saying like um can you come and see i've got you know exactly the problem that you describe on your website can you come and see them i go yeah yeah brilliant no that's great referral um and they're, they're willing to pay our rates in devon uh, will you pay us travel? Well, no. And then it was like, well, do you have a therapist near Devon and stuff? And so as I tried to then reach out to work out who could I signpost people to, then the business model changed slightly and there became this network effect around physio matters, including then that person that I might send to see a, a sore ankle in Derbyshire. Then also, um, you could you could also then say, well, do you fancy helping us write a newsletter? Or do you know what I mean? You create that little network effect from them being quite multi-talented, not just clinically, but clearly interested in some of the broadcasting we're doing and stuff. Um, and this was all based when we we lived in Sheffield. And then eventually the commuting was just too much and we needed to put some roots down and we fancied living in Manchester. So we moved to Manchester um, uh, seven years ago now um, and the business was able to move with us. Um, it, it changed its identity clinically by then. You know, it was because um, because our our life goals had changed. We we're looking to buy a house and, and get married and stuff. So, so that changed a bit. But then physio matters had just taken off by then. So we ran monthly shows, monthly long form interview shows with the best and brightest in the MSK game, and have done since as we fast approach a hundred consecutive months on that on that channel which is mental but um you know it was it was quite a useful thing because it was quite a virtual quite a digi digital business like straight away so it could travel with us really mm. and then so in terms of <clears throat> excuse me the content that you were putting out so were you actively 
I'm sure you weren't directly doing that, but was it with a, a mind to get people to get in touch with you then? Were you, were you leading it that way or was it a genuine interview? No, that's what I was saying. It was two birds with one stone. I, I can't pretend, like part of me thinks that it'd be smart for me to sort of imply that that was always the strategy all along, was to try and fuel referrals into Choose Health, because it wasn't. A lot of it was just like a burning desire to ask questions of some of the people who I was reading the research of, you know, think about some of those early podcasts. Like I was lit, these were literally a hit list of what, if I, I won the lottery tomorrow, what courses would I be going on? Lee Harrington, Ian Horsley, Mike Stewart. I hope he'd have given me a free place, but, um, but it, then you've got Seth O'Neill, uh, who else was in there? Um, oh, I think I, Joe Gibson will have been an early one, you know, just, of course I couldn't afford to go on. If I was on those courses, which I occasionally would go to a course or a conference and stuff, I'd be, I'd be the saddle at the front row asking awkward questions at the end, like just hogging the mic to try and poke into some of their ideas and say, well, this, your Spanish nemesis thinks this. What do you think of that then? You know, because I'd want to understand how robust their idea was compared to a counter narrative about the same thing. Right? I always cared about that. So then that was kind of the big driver for physiomatics. I thought, I wonder if people are interested, as I am, in that being elicited from these people like them being challenged but in a way that I certainly never made never fell out with any of these people it's not like I was being a pest it was more that just eliciting things by journalistic questions and good interviewing and stuff being not quite Paxman but not being Alan Carr when it comes to interviewing right you know just like that 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 that's maybe a mad spectrum isn't it between like obnoxious probing from Paxman and like giddy administrative interviewing from car right it's just like it's got to be somewhere in between surely or being more paxman than than sort of just administrating an interview so that's kind of what it was it wasn't um but it, but it did naturally expose me and our brands to therapists which which we did need to sell to both at the time and since you know as a business level um but remembering of course that these things were free so when we're celebrating uh, physio matters taking off and we're getting thousands and then tens of thousands of of and it's become millions of downloads you're celebrating but you're also wondering like ah you know am i am i that guy that's made have i, have I made education too free too accessible i've actually decimated an industry of which i should really be trying to make money from uh because of all the time it's taken and the infrastructure and the costs and the bandwidth that you're asking of and stuff so you know that's riddled me all my career and i'll never know the answer to it but that's one of the things that happened is you take these are taking off but they're not commercially taking off yet you know our free stuff was doing brilliantly you know so you know that was always something that haunted me Mm. And then, so, so along, on that lines, then was there wasn't really a strategy in terms of right. We're going to try and commercialise certain aspects because I think that's it's one thing that you hear from loads of really successful business people is you do something that's good quality, people want, and then naturally things good things should come from it. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that 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 as a general rule does work. You know, if you concentrate on you concentrate on on a specialised and and and, and focused product, and then yeah. You can sometimes then worry about monetizing it afterwards or or not necessarily monetizing that product, but something good will come of that those relationships because you're really concentrated and focused on something. That does does stand true. I think one of the things that I did and and, and you know, it's hard to know. At this point, in the final analysis, I hope I'll never regret it, but there's been phases, especially when the pandemic loomed, that I certainly was in massive regret of having been 
I always just I knew there were obvious routes to monetizing various things. But um again, because I wasn't in a rush. It, it, I just wasn't. I wasn't I'm, I struggle to be now. You know, your dynamics change, your circumstances change socially, and the world changes like a pandemic, which you didn't see coming. So you you can you know, like I said, there might be regrets. And had we gone bankrupt last March, which was a very real thing that could have happened to us, then I'd have regretted not charging a penny a podcast right so you know I, I, there's always that but um but I, I disagree when people say that you need to always have like some people in business say you know you need an exit strategy in mind as soon as you get going or you need to work out and commercialize every little corner of it and stuff you need to keep them in the you know you shouldn't ignore it but then similarly some things are just passion projects in this game you know my stuff there ain't there aren't crisp lines between my business self and myself you know it's just not that i'm not that guy right I, i'm just I'm, as i said to you before i was really i'm a saddle for being massively into rehab right i just i just that it's like the core of my being and that's not just like injury rehab right it's just that the act of rehabilitation substance abuse or mental health or whatever it's just like the act of the act of getting someone better and 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 the fact that that needs a dedicated and, and thoughtful therapist is powerful so the the fact that there ain't crisp lines between my passion projects and my business projects and stuff means that then i think sometimes some fun ideas get spoiled by being over commercial but then of course on the say in this in my next breath i need to say some brilliant projects get spoiled by not being appropriately commercially minded right there is a sweet spot but in healthcare especially in this country under a very public health system you know it's 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 a constant tussle with your own healthcare ethics there and, and i'm not saying it's easy but i i just don't like it when people imply one or the other right they, they want to imply that like don't worry about the money it'll sort itself out naive but then equally those that are sort of saying like as soon as you're even in a brainstorm phase or something that you fancy doing with an hour of your time a week you need to think about when you're going to commercial when you're going to press the press go on the no you probably don't need to do that because sometimes sometimes um that's not necessary for you to reach your goals or that your reputation lifts enough for you to monetize some of your other labor you know that's the thing you know that's the thing with you know i'll never regret physio matters being free an early therapy lives being free because you know fundamentally it's exposure and and that you know you 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 commercialize it a different way so you know that that's that's where i uh i do get a bit a bit a bit irritated sometimes when people almost think that there is a a right answer to that i'm not saying mine is but i just kind of know that any end of that spectrum ends up being a bit too dogmatic because it depends on the project the person the passions the purpose the time frame you know it's relevant that i did that in my 20s and i wouldn't have done it in my 40s you know and, and that when people in their 40s were criticizing me for some of that or even lauding me for some of that my age was relevant and my circumstances were relevant the fact that i didn't have dependence was relevant the fact that me and my wife weren't super material people that needed a bigger house or a, or a car that even worked at that point mattered you know we put 100 quid in a piece to start choose health because we just kind of needed a logo and a basic website and we went from there and that matters as well you know the, the, the type of people we are and what we what we want from the world and our contribution to it that is on us and therefore for us to suggest that that is the way is nonsense because it's our way and that people need to find their own and, and we can't judge them for it and we hope that people won't judge us for it if that makes sense no, no, it definitely does. Definitely does. And in terms of therapy live, so like, how did that come about? Obviously, it was kind of 
we know that the main reason in terms of like pandemic and so on <laughs> that way but how did it was it something you'd been thinking about anyway yeah in a way we, we'd done some really successful in-person conferences where it had been it would have been called physio matters live i imagine but at the time we were doing the big r's project which became msk reform so our think tank on and we were doing with with connect health but we'd done some really successful in-person events and i was thinking like how could you how could you create an educational atmosphere that then was more accessible across countries and stuff because you know, the big costs that came from that weren't ticket sales um and you certainly couldn't make any money from those conferences from ticket sales because everyone was having to pay for hotels, often the hotel of which the conference was at, which was a nice hotel. So you ended up being you know, 150 quid a night, plus your travel. Internationals wanted to come over, and so they had their flights. So it was like we started to live stream some of our conferences, and and and, and people would pay tickets into into that. I'm just realising, sorry, Andy, I'm just going to have to plug my... I didn't realise it wasn't plugged in, so my uh, laptop's about to die on us, I think. Um, so what... Um, what happened was that was happening obviously pre-pandemic we'd already started live streaming certain conferences to people internationally and so then i was thinking prior to it happening like could we create some sort of hybrid events where we where whatever it is we did in person including live broadcast physio uh, physio matters podcast and stuff could we start to do that and so i'd already looked into some of the technologies the note that i couldn't crack was how could you get um vendors and sponsors and stuff the appropriate exposure for them to get returned from the eyeballs that we no doubt will be able to attract right as an educational venture you could make sense of it but you know could it be worthwhile for exhibitors and so the last meeting that i took before the world shut down was with a guy called michael schumacher who runs now hmdg uh, which is a marketing company in, in in healthcare and we were talking about various things he built the mskr website he was looking at choose health's um marketing infrastructure for google ads and stuff like that and so i told him about this and and he said i bet you could you know and if the world shuts down like we anticipate that it's about to then it's not as much about the question as to how can you get parity for the exhibitors compared to their in-person shows because the in-person shows won't happen they're not going to do large gatherings so this was quite good because we got ahead of this right so you imagine this is us talking about that late february early march of, of 2020 meant that then when we started to look into it and we were able to especially because the pandemic shut in my practice as well as where we were at and i'd just come off the back of six weeks paternity leave we were completely, you know, it was going to bang, it was going to bang. I needed to pull a rabbit out of that. And so we did under Therapy Live. And between us, with the, him, him on digital media and marketing, as well as them, me being able to reach out to our, our uh, speaker base and network, as well as then having the reach of our audience that we did, is that we then put Therapy Live on from start to finish, from conception to delivery within 10 weeks. And we had 22,500 people turned up for it. And we had... I think it was in that first show, it was like 90 speakers over 65 sessions. And and and, and whilst, you know, it had, its, it had its problems and it had its early tech gremlins in the morning, but it, it, it worked and it was a big celebration of all that could be in MSK. And it, it came about off a combination of the fact that we had set the scene. We had been thinking about something similar, not together, which I think was would have been a mistake if ever I'd have done it without him. But... It also was fueled by 
one of the most powerful forces in business, which is the you know that the, the very real prospect of it all completely collapsing for forces that weren't necessarily under your control. Now, some of them should have been under your control, right? That's the that's the whole thing about you know, had that have completely folded us, and this conversation wasn't happening because we because I was in a different spot then. Then we, I would have, I would have perhaps regretted then not monetizing products sooner. Do you know what I mean? So that's where we were at, which is funny. But we'd only recently put a lot of our capital into building a practice out of an old supermarket, you know. So that that comes at some costs. So that's our, our HQ, uh, local to where I live. So I think that that's where Therapy Live story is funny, and I think some it's it's documented some places. But yeah, we were. It was a real roll of the dice from us, and uh, and, it, and it paid off, and it was great. It needs to adapt now therapy live but as far as for the pandemic goes i think some of the most powerful testimonials we've had over the entirety of my career have come from um from therapists that otherwise felt lost and and, and lonely in the in the pandemic and, and really struggled to keep on top of their own learning their own motivations and stuff and so the way that they've interacted with therapy live and some of our other materials in the pandemic has been really quite powerful for our position within the industry and how we feel that we are actually managing to help people, especially in developing nations, because it was free at the point of access. And then you paid if you wanted to access the recordings, meant that we've had some lovely outreach from people in developing nations that want to raise standards in their area. Um, so this just, you know, it's massively rewarding experience to do that and do it at the scale that we managed to do it in. Mm. And what do you see the vision for like your work then? So you've got a load of things that you're working on, but where do you, what projects have you got in the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, it's something that needs to be, I need to find ways to make it more measurable and therefore myself be more accountable to this as a wider goal. But fundamentally, I want to raise standards in MSK healthcare in the UK. Like, what's that mean, of course? And therefore, you kind of, uh, you can lowball that and say, well, things are better and therefore I've done a good job. Uh, but you can also rag on yourself and think, you know, that we're not in utopia yet and therefore it's not, we've not done a good job. But generally speaking, that is the sort of centre of my bullseye, really, is that um, I have this concept uh, where you know, the, the, the average person turning up to see AN professional somewhere about their pain and injury. I just want things to be better for them, more accurate for them by the time I retire than I did when I entered, you know. And, and whilst that could be just the arc of progress of time, but I like the idea that hopefully me and my team and my projects can just meet, meet you know, contribute positively to that process. Uh, that's kind of the centre of it. Uh, as far as the sort of more more specifically the visions within other projects is that being, being the go-to respected um, education provider within MSK, uh, we like that to, we would like that to transcend just interprofessionally in MSK therapies uh, and, in, and in medicine, of course, with sports and exercise medics and orthopods that respect our work. But we also like the idea of then educating that next layer of fitness professionals and, and the public health benefits that that would bring. We're doing some more direct work with actual athletes themselves, as well as then Joe Public starting to interact with our materials because we have a clinic and through Choose Health and stuff. So we've got those layers of brands where Physiomatters has been speaking to therapists and we'll start to speak more to fitness professionals. But then you've also got a clinical brand that can help to translate some of that material for Joe Public uh, and, and help them get better and a clinical brand that can grow from that. Um, so plans for sort of centres of excellence elsewhere in the country that's on the clinical side. Um, and then education, that is just about making sure we we keep an eye out for for what's next, really. What's the market want? What doesn't it want? You know, I think that there's been a massive saturation, including contributed to by, by us. 
um, in, in the last couple of years, naturally because of the pandemic, everyone's been sat behind a screen producing content and stuff. So we were fortunate to have have been doing that before and so we moved quickly but that means that now it's possibly getting a bit tired and I don't want to contribute to that you know I want to innovate again um, events we need to find the sweet spot between hybrid events in person and, and, and virtual uh, you know, we're thinking about what that looks like um, but then the, the, the wider vision is to continue to exert influence through soft power by Having a, a trusted and loyal audience that, that contributing to a feedback loop means that then what they want is then demanded of employers in a difficult market to recruit, right? So they have to raise their standards on pay and they have to raise their standards on CPD provision and they have to raise their standards on the system of efficiency of which each clinician works in. And if they don't, in a market where it's a buyer's market, they ain't going to recruit those therapists. If they don't recruit those therapists, they've got gaping holes in their services, they're going to struggle. And they deserve to struggle if they're not going to step up, right? Better themselves. So I like the fact that then having these conversations, some of the people think it's just like, oh, it's chatter on the internet. It's like by chatting on the internet that's heard by enough people creates a social movement that people want and expect better of each other, of themselves, of their bosses, of their NHS, Right? of society at large, right? And that's the, the the dream, which doesn't happen overnight. But like I said, when I was smirking at people that thought I was being naive as if to say like, let's do this and then next year it'll be better. It's like, no, I wasn't saying that, was I? I was coming into it at the start of my career and uh, yeah, it was in a rush. I wanted to, I, but sooner it changes, the better, right? People are suffering. But that's the cool thing is that the vision can be a, a, a rhythm. The, the, the long game is that things are just better and I need to measure that better. But um, but you know I don't I don't really mind and I think as a, on a business level um, that just follows for me you know you get the you get the right ideas and you get the right people around them people these are experts there's a market for people to pay for we solve people's problems don't we it's like be that clinically or in business terms you're solving people's problems it's like well every problem's got a cash value to it that you can acquire through various different circumstances like how, how much is it worth if that if your knee was better in three months' time from having work with us on it and it's disabling you as you're describing, like, what's that worth? Now, you don't say that to patients. That's where you do have more of a menu, right? You have your prices. But there is a value to someone, and, and that is what they're paying for when they see a best-in-class physiotherapist or equivalent. And then similarly, in, in business terms, I see it the same. You see being like, right, well, what? how can we help you solve that problem you're describing? And how much is that problem costing you? And what would a solution to that problem then lead to you being able to do? Now, fortunately, I'm also pretty discerning where that problem isn't, you know, I don't work with like shopkeepers to just try and help them sell more chocolate bars. You know, I'm working with people that are solving healthcare problems in society. Like, that's really cool. So there's almost, it's not charitable, but it's like, it helps me achieve my purpose to raise standards in education and, and healthcare as well, which is cool. So I see it as similar. It's like that's the vision for the business is just solve more problems, you know, because that's that's something that is is obviously good, but it's also profitable, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could keep digging into loads of these uh, responses on there, but there's one thing I definitely wanted to ask you as well, which is you're talking about people there, and like when you're recruiting people and when you're working with them, it's, I found it really interesting asking this question to whether it is Graham Smith or Grant Downey was talking about it. And it was like looking at the soft skills of these people as well. So like for us, when we're taking someone on, it's I love doing personality tests. I find that really fascinating in terms right. of how they fit in with the team. But like, how do you go about that when you're work, choosing to work with people? 
we do personality testing, but we don't do it at point of recruitment. And also, we've um, I've got a rubbish answer to this because our recruitment's been so odd because we've had people that have that we've grown our own. You know, Jim, who runs Physio Matters now, volunteer on, on, on in a sal in a salary position, and and uh, you know, he might you might not want to admit to this, but what he describes as at least what it's aiming to be is his dream job. But um, but he started off volunteering, you know, to to write some newsletters and to run a Twitter account and stuff like that. So we've grown our own. So we can't pretend that what we how we recruited him was the same. We recruited him because he was willing and keen and seemed to like our stuff, you know, seven years ago. Um, and we've kind of got those stories, which is cool because ours is a business that came from emergent projects. But now when we're recruiting, um, you do. You do a version of that, don't you? It might not be a formalised personality screening or testing, but you are trying to work out whether they're a good fit and whether or not, you know, how, how compatible would they be and stuff. And I think that is yeah, that is central, which is what you're speaking to. I think, though, um, for us, even if, and this is what surprises people sometimes, is that even if we've got someone whose primary job is going to be to monitor this part-time position where you're monitoring certain email addresses, for our education piece and then occasionally you will need to just help out with some of the back office stuff for therapy life right we we end up and we've got a thing where we get really brilliant clinicians doing that and you'd think that that would be quite inefficient right you'd think well that's an admin job but the point is that they then become more versatile right they are the person that you can then train up to be a moderator at the next event they're the person that then is is, is honing their craft that then they're exactly who we might say, well, we're thinking of opening up a Birmingham office. Do you fancy running it, right? You wouldn't do that if they were an administrator. They might be able to be a practice manager. But, you know, I, I like I think that there's something about therapists that are super versatile. And if you pick the right person and they're following the path that we want with regards to the philosophy, the care about it and stuff, is that there's something there is something that can be done whereby you're using a clinician to do some administrative stuff because they get it. They get it on that raw level. And then when an inquiry comes in that's more specifically about something clinically or that needs that deeper insight into the MSK industry, they have that. And so um, that's that thing, that difference that I was speaking to before, where instead of administrative interviews or administrative moderating and stuff, and I'm not dismissing that, I'm just meaning it gets done. We are adding value in that at that level all the time and it doesn't mean we won't have receptionists and don't have people that are non-clinical right we've got a managing director across the business group who's non-clinical that wasn't even in healthcare so we value skills from outside as well but when we're recruiting which is different to most people is uh we just we really value that high-end clinical skill even if they're not going to be a clinical specialist for us because we just think that they're going to have better questions and they're going to challenge us better as well. They're, they're going to be less likely to go along with, if, if I go wrong or we go wrong on something and we're, we're uh, touting the wrong product or we're pursuing the wrong um, theories, we're not asking the right questions of people. We need a feedback loop internally that challenges on that. And if they were someone that we've drafted in uh, that isn't up to scratch clinically, they're less likely to challenges on it. And so that's quite different. So the personality stuff that you're describing, I'm well into, but that's probably one thing that I would add that would be quite different to us. Mm. Yeah, and no, I think it's a really good point that I can relate to it in the same way as people answering the phone, like I've been answering the phone for throughout this period, it diverts to my mobile sometimes. And it's like you get, you get clinical questions and it's, 
whoever's answering that phone needs to have a decent answer. Just saying, oh, yeah, I'll get someone to call you back doesn't always wash. So, no, I think it's that's a really good point. But in terms of the personality test, that's another – we're the same. I much prefer organic, but as, we, as we're as we growing, like I'm genuinely – when I get a personality test through from someone – I'm like, oh god, I hope they, I hope they meet what I want them to meet. <laughs> so it's like you're almost like, oh god, I hope they're like, yes, brilliant, they've got it. So sure. yeah, whether or not it actually defines if they get the job or not, it's more really about the that the interaction. I would say. Yeah, I think one of the things that's fun about ours is I, I put our our staff on a on a table where you've got big five personality traits that get delineated, and then what we've noticed above all else, it's a nice mixed bag amongst the team. But most of them have got profiles that are weird, like myself, where it's just like there's this stuff that you wouldn't normally couple. You just wouldn't expect those two traits. And so we have got a proper band of, uh, of oddballs in a way, and I think we all identify as such. So I don't think my staff would be slighted by that. But yeah, our team, when you look at their personality dynamics and stuff, they just don't fit a decent trend because they just are quirky i think that they have to be quirky to be patient enough to have sort of persisted with us and to kind of get where it's at because it is quite scatty and we've got many different projects that are happening it seems a bit chaotic but uh, you know it seems to work as well so um that's one of the things i suppose i'd say to people is when you're recruiting and stuff like tempting to try to think about who might be a perfect fit and be orderly but you'd be surprised if you brought someone in that was sort of 80 percent there but then the 20 percent of them was something quite quirky like a, a quite relevant difference then yeah we've had we've some great successes with that people who've really surprised you stepping up you just did not you didn't see them as a leader that ends up being your best leader and stuff like that uh, comes out of nowhere you can't always read that you've just got to give it a go mm. Great. No, no. Well, I really appreciate your time on that. I look forward to meeting some of your quirky teammates uh, <laughs> in the near future. But no, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Some some great insights. And uh, yeah, I will. Well, I'll see you not next week, but the week after anyway. So. That's right. We're meeting in person. That'd be nice, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for the questions. Though. It's been great. And, uh, and certainly uh, you didn't uncover any skeletons in my LinkedIn profile that hasn't been updated for a while. Then that's good news. No, no, I'm definitely uh, more, more uh, car than Paxman. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. No, thanks a lot, mate. Take care. Good man. Cheers. Thanks.